I actually do think I'm missing one of my pages. <laughs> no, I think it was. Can I? Uh... <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> All right. Uh, at this time, we're going to open God's Word uh, together. And uh, so please turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And we're going to look at verses 31 to 39 this morning, but we're going to start reading from verse 28 together. Start reading at verse 28. Let's hear uh, the word of our Lord. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things who shall bring any charge against God's elect it is God who justifies who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, sword as it is written? For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep. To be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, for I am sure, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Congregation, it was a few years ago um, that I found myself in a pretty uh, dark place. Uh, I felt hopeless, lost, uh, uncertain about uh, what God wanted from me in my life, uh, the direction I was to take. Um, I was very low and in a bad way, as, as they say. And a sister uh, in Christ reached out to me and she said these words. She said, Bryce, God loves you so deeply. And those words hit me uh, like a brick 
Christ, God loves you so deeply. And I ask you that to hear this morning. When is the last time someone looked you in the eyes and said, God loves you? God loves you so deeply. We appreciate this truth as much as we ought. I don't think so, nor do we give it the attention uh, that it deserves. And it's true that this topic, the topic of God's love, is, is one that has been sorely mishandled, abused, twisted, perverted um, by so-called progressives who, who take God's love out of the context of Scripture and use it as an excuse or a means um, for sin. But that's not what we're looking at here. And just because uh, some people mishandle the truth of God's love doesn't mean that we shouldn't proclaim it boldly because that's precisely what the Bible does. The love of God is not only central to Scripture, it is at the very heart of who God is. He is a God who in Christ has expressed his love and displayed his love in a way that far surpasses any love which the world could express or display. And the love that we read up here in our text in Romans 8 is a victorious love, a conquering love, a love which is indestructible, a love which is infinite, invincible, that is beyond all measure. It's a love that cannot be taken from you, which persists through all manner of trials. It is a love which upholds us in the most difficult of difficulties, and it reassures us amidst our doubts and our skepticisms that our relationship to God in Christ is an everlasting one. It is this love people of God that has kept you going throughout your lives and which you need to cling to going forward because it is precisely this love that is going to sustain you. And I have no doubt that the Lord will continue to bless uh, this congregation as he continues to bless his churches all around the world. And yet we know that this life is is filled with all sorts of difficulties and, and challenges, as I'm sure you're all aware. Some great, some small, all of which will be lighter if you remember this truth. God loves you. And that's our theme this morning, and I want to explore it under three headings. First, God loves you as displayed in the gospel. Second, God loves you through all manner of trials. And third, God loves you with a victorious love. And if we look at our text, in verse 31, Paul begins with this question. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? The question is rhetorical. Uh, the answer is obvious. If God is for us, he's saying none. Can be against us. And we find here an echo of Psalm 56 11, wherein the psalmist says, In the Lord I trust 
what shall flesh do to me? And even still, is it not the case that when we are confronted by ill fortune or distress, when something doesn't go off the way we want it to, we too easily forget this very truth. We know that we must not fear man who can do nothing more than kill the body and yet forget that the the author of life himself is on our side. So fragile are we and and so prone to forget and not appreciate this truth that that Paul feels it necessary uh, to go on with great enthusiasm to prove just how true this truth really is. And there's no better way to do that than by drawing the attention of his audience, of you here this morning, to the gospel. And that's what we get in verse 32. Verse 32, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, what more, this is what Paul is saying, what more could God have done for you to prove his love for you? How could you ever doubt his love when you consider what it cost him? It's been famously said that grace is free, but it is not cheap because it costs God the life of his only son. Consider a judge who convicts a guilty criminal. This is common procedure, something we'd all expect. And now think of a judge who convicts an innocent man in order to save somebody else. Note that this innocent man is also his son, his one and only son, who has only ever pleased his father. That's what Paul is talking about here. And to this, we should ask the question that should come to our minds into our hearts when we hear this, is why? Why would God have such mercy on me? For I have done nothing worthy of such love, of such intervention. My sins are so great. And the answer is, as William Hendrickson writes in his commentary on Romans, so deeply, intensely, And marvelously did God love the world that his son, the only begotten, he gave in order that everyone who believes in him should not perish but have life everlasting. That's John 3.16, isn't it? Is this not the message of the cross? The ultimate expression of God's love for his people. Consider the words of our Lord from John 15. Verse 13, greater love has no other than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. That's what Christ did. He laid down his life and he did it willingly, voluntarily, because he loves you. No one takes it from me, he says, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This charge... I have received from my Father. You see, God sends the Son 
and the son goes willingly to the cross. He goes willingly to the cross out of love to secure your salvation, my salvation, the salvation of a multitude of people, the salvation of all those who put their trust in him. You see, that man who takes your place in the courtroom before the judge is not just there because the father told him to. He is there because he loves you and he would rather die for you and experience the full weight of divine wrath and justice than to see you perish. What manner of love is this? You know, it's hard for the world to comprehend this love, the love of God that we see on display here. The message of the cross, says the Apostle Paul, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to the children of God, it is what? It is the very power of God himself. It is the the love of God. We cannot separate the love of God on the one hand from the atoning work of Christ on, on the cross, wherein he took upon himself the punishment for sin that we deserved. 1 John 4, verse 10, we read, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The Reformed theologian uh, John Murray, in his famous book on redemption, says you cannot understand the atoning work of Christ on the cross apart from God's love. And he writes, no treatment of the atonement can be properly oriented that does not trace its source to the free and sovereign love of God. But this story doesn't end with Christ's death on the cross. When Christ died, this is true. And he was buried. We also know that after three days, he was raised again. Not only did he die, he was raised. Raised, says Paul in chapter 4, for our justification. And where is he now? Where is Christ right now? Paul says, at the right hand of God, interceding for you. Verse 34, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. What does this mean? We talk about this uh, intercessory work of, of Christ. What, what does that actually uh, mean? What does it mean that Christ is at the right hand of God making intersection, intercession for us? We sometimes take this to mean something uh, it doesn't. What it doesn't mean is that the Father is uh, continually mad at us and the Son is always having to calm him, da- calm him down and convince him to go easy on us. God, God is not chomping at the bit trying to get, get back at you uh, for your sins whilst Christ struggles to hold him back. That's not what Christ's intercession is about. Christ died for your sins. And if you put your faith in him, you can be assured that there is, as Paul says earlier in this chapter, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and so Paul, while Paul talks about Christ's intercession, he, he simply means that Jesus now appears in heaven as the one who has died for
for his people and was raised again for their justification. And this once for all death and resurrection stands as an eternal seal of salvation for all those who believe in his name. This doesn't mean that God is not wrathful against sin. He, he is terribly angry when it comes to the state of the world. But the scriptures are clear that all who have professed true faith in Christ are no longer children of wrath, but of, of glory. Ephesians 1, we find a, one of the great proof texts for the doctrine of predestination and in, of election, which is you know, something as, as Calvinists we like to point out. But one thing we sometimes often forget is that it says this in Ephesians 1. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, but it says in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace to which he has blessed us in the beloved. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself. God loves his people and there's no greater proof than the gospel itself. But perhaps you remain doubtful, skeptical of God's love for you. Perhaps it's, it's easy for you to understand that God loves you when things are going well, but what, when, what about when things are, are going poorly? Uh, consider this year past, 2023. Uh, what challenges did you face? What trials did you experience? And you need to ask yourself at any point during this difficult season, did the Lord cease to love you? It's a very serious question. When you're going through trials, tribulation, does the Lord cease to love you? Look at verse 35. That's where we get the answer to that question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Again, it's, a, it's another pair of rhetorical questions. Paul is, is fond of these. Whenever he poses a rhetorical question, it usually is, if you look at his writings, the, usually is, usually, the answer is usually no one, nothing, or by no means. He first asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is nobody. And then he gives seven circumstances that some might propose as causes of separation, yet none of which has robbed him of his confidence in God's love, and none of which should rob us of our confidence in God's love. Shall tribulation separate us from this love? Paul probably has in mind here with the, the meaning of this word, outward or external factors, all of which you've experienced. Tribulation on a personal level, but also tribulation collectively as a church. Maybe you're worried about what the year has in store ahead. Uh, perhaps you're a student, like myself, um, trying to meet the demands of school. Perhaps things are 
are stressful at work, or maybe you're retiring from work, and you're concerned about how you're going to make ends meet when you're not drawing a regular paycheck. Perhaps you're concerned about how you're going to provide for your, your family, for your wife, and your kids. Whatever the case may be, take your pick. Paul says, none of these things are able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He gives us a quote from Psalm 44. He says, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. At first glance, it kind of seems like an odd uh, place for this quote. What is the purpose here? What is Paul talking about? Paul is simply showing us that the suffering and affliction, that suffering and affliction is not to be regarded uh, by God's children as a foreign concept. Uh, It should never be taken to mean that God no longer loves you, but has been the experience of God's people throughout uh, all of history. In fact, for Paul, suffering is, is the means by which the believer the child, is God, the child of God is actually drawn into closer communion with him. A special note here that Paul has in mind is the suffering and the affliction uh, that the Christian endures uh, for the sake of the kingdom in service to Christ. It reminds one of the, of the words of our Lord from uh, Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, These famous words, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so it is not our business when confronted with trials, tribulation, to doubt God's love for us. His love is not rendered void by difficulties, but so often shines all the brighter amidst these trials. As Calvin notes here, I like this quote, For his clouds, though they obscure the clear brightness of the sun, do not yet wholly deprive us of its light. So God, in adversities, sends forth through the darkness the rays of his favor. Of course, Calvin himself, as with many of the reformers, uh, were no strangers to tribulation uh, and distress. And we learn from Calvin's personal correspondence that he suffered from a whole myriad of health conditions, ranging from uh, intense migraines to kidney stones to regular bouts of malaria, tuberculosis, and even uh, ulcerated veins. If you don't know what that is, I didn't know what it was until I looked it up, Uh, but it's not pretty. His ministry was tumultuous, and he spent three years in exile before returning to the role of pastor in Geneva where he died at the young age of 54. And yet in the midst of all that, he was able to say this, whatever happens, we ought to stand firm in this faith, that God, who once in his love embraced us, never ceases to care for us. That God, once in his love embraced us, never ceases to care for us. Which brings us 
finally, congregation, here this morning to what is probably one of the greatest and most profound expressions of God's love in all of Scripture. Listen to what Paul says here again. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, how is it so, how is it that Paul, after expressing such, expressing how difficult is the lot of the Christian and the sufferings of this world, goes on to refer to you and I as more than conquerors. How, how do these things fit together? We might translate this as, in all things we are most victorious. Or another way you could translate it as, we prevail completely. Hendrickson, the commentator who I mentioned earlier, he uses the term, translates the Greek as super conquerors. In all things we are super conquerors. What is the difference between a super conqueror and a, a regular uh, conqueror? He says, a conqueror is a person who defeats the enemy. One who is more than a conqueror, a super conqueror, causes the enemy to become a helper. I'll read that again. A conqueror is a person who defeats the enemy. One who is more than a conqueror causes the enemy to become a helper. You'll recall what Paul says in verse 28, that great promise of God. And we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to, who, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so the Christian life, yes, is one of affliction that is evidenced from our experience, and yet it is also one of great victory. John Murray writes that in every count, encounter with, with adversity, even with the hostility that is unto death, the victory is unqualified. Where the world sees defeat, the Christian sees victory. For such is the nature of the cross itself. The means by which, through apparent defeat, Christ con conquered sin, death, and the devil himself. The Christian should never doubt for an instant that he or she is on the winning side. For in Christ, the victory is secure. You'll notice that verses 38 to 39 contain what is more or less uh, four sets of opposites, uh, beginning with life and, and death. Um, it's an absolutely central truth of the Christian faith that the person who is in Christ through faith has nothing to fear in death. In the URC churches, we use the Heidelberg uh, Catechism, which you may or may not be familiar with, but the, the first question in there, Heidelberg Catechism, question answer number one, uh, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer, that I am not my own, but belong, both body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What about these angels and principalities and powers? 
that Paul is talking about here. Well, we know who angels are. These are God's ministering spirits who continually come to the aid of God's people. We read about that in Scripture. By principalities, it is likely meant an evil spirit or a fallen angel. Powerful forces, uh, no, no doubt, that we also read of in Scripture. Their task, as it is the task of, of Satan, uh, our accuser, is to make us doubt uh, our standing with God in Christ, to make us doubt God's love for us. The thing is, even if they manage to do this, even if they managed uh, for a season to fill your mind with doubt about God's love for you, it does not change the objective fact that God still loves you. We know Satan likes to sling accusations at us about how we are beyond the reach of God's love, how our sins have damned us. But he is, as you know, a liar. And listen to what uh, Luther said on this in a way that only Luther uh, could. He wrote, if Satan says, thou shalt be damned, you tell him, no, for I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sins in accusing me of being a damnable sinner, you are cutting your own throat, Satan. You are reminding me of God's fatherly goodness toward me. That he so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In calling me a sinner, Satan, you really comfort me above all measure. With such heavenly cunning, we are to meet the devil's craft and put from us the memory of sin. In other words, if all the angelic forces of heaven and the demonic forces of hell were aligned against you, Paul says, they could never separate you from God's love. Nor things present, things to come, nor height, nor depth, that is neither time nor space, or any force of nature. In fact, he argues, nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I hope you believe this congregation. You know, some of you might feel very confident in this love. Say, I know God loves me. But for others, it might not be that simple. You know, some people, and people I know, feel too sinful for God's love. They stop going to church because of it. They've done something that they know they shouldn't have. And they feel like you know, God is angry at them. And they feel too ashamed to come to church now. I'm talking about uh, Christians here. They're like Peter who, um, after witnessing the power of the Lord upon the sea, falls to his knees and cries out. Do you remember what he says? Depart from me, O Lord. Because I am a sinful man. Depart from me, O Lord, because I'm a sinful man. In other words, I am too sinful. But what does Jesus do? How does he respond? He tells Peter not to be afraid. And then he makes him his disciple. 
He knows that Peter is a sinner. But it is precisely because we are sinners that Christ came to die for us. And he did this because he loves us. We have to remember that our own worst sins are not enough to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Because when we put our faith in Christ, our sins are washed by his blood. And you are from that point onward counted righteous before God. For those who do not know the love of of Christ, such people exist in our churches, in our communities, both in here and and out, out there. You know, we need to offer that, that love. We need to say, come, taste of this love. Repent of your sins and believe. Be washed by the blood of Christ. Know that without this relationship to Christ, you are lost in your sins and and the wrath of God is upon you. But when you repent of your sins and you throw yourself upon the mercy of the cross, upon the mercy of Christ, you will experience a love which says your sins are forgiven. Congregation, we must never forget. You must never forget that the powers of sin, death, Satan are no match for God's love in Christ in whom we are more than victorious. Behold, congregation, the victorious love of God. They say every good sermon ends with a a poem. Some people say that. I don't know. I found one that I thought was worth reciting here. Uh, No death, not death and not life, and not angels above can ever exclude us from God's lasting love. Nor present, nor future can ever avail to cause that great love for his dear ones to fail. Nor demons or powers, nor not depth and not height can weaken its glow or diminish its might. No creature can part us, whatever the sort, from God's love that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as your children, having been purchased by the precious blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, who, despite all of our sins, came to this world to take upon the weight of that sin and experience the full weight of your wrath against sin, that in him we might live and have life eternal with you. Father, we thank you for your love for us, this never-ending, never-failing love, this love which has brought us here uh, this morning, this love which has been through us, through thick and thin, this love which will never leave us, from which nothing uh, in heaven or on earth can separate us from. We thank you, God. And we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that, that by his spirit we would have all the more confidence in your love for us.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.